Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, as we've been discussing really over the last several months, one of the, one of the driving narratives of these markets is inflation. Uh, we are seeing it. The question is, is it transitory? Is it something more permanent that could really uh, put up some roadblocks for this economy? You know, I'm looking at the 10 years. We were talking with Ira Jersey just earlier. Again, 1.53% on the 10 years. So the bond market is not seeing it. Michael Hans, he's the chief investment officer for Clarfeld Financial Advisors. They have about $17 billion in assets under management. Michael joins us. Michael, we appreciate you taking the time here. As you look at markets here, we, we I know you've been constructive on these markets. How do you think about the inflation risk to these markets? Good morning. Thanks for having me. So I think the, the biggest risk that we discuss is we sit down and try to think about setting investment policy and direction for our clients is not necessarily the individual asset class performance that you're going to see directly resulting from moves in the inflation data. It's more so the challenges that it puts on the Fed, who's really guessing at this point in time with two potential outcomes. One is that they're right and guiding towards transitory levels of inflation, in which case they will have the ability of reasonable growth coming in. These inflation dynamics moderating with what we're seeing right now is a confluence of issues, but making it really challenging as a base effect. And then they have the ability to set policy and be somewhat restrictive at the margin in a more gradual pace. The flip side is what I think many market participants are afraid of, is that they are somewhat complacent because of their desire to maintain policy focusing on the labor side of their mandate, and then forced to more aggressively restrict policy down the line. So yeah. from our vantage point, not an issue in 2021, likely, right? We're still talking about first thinking about some form of taper, and there's a lot that's going to happen before they raise rates. And so the market right now, frankly, I think some of your, your guests pointed out, you as well, it's a little bit of back and forth here in a, in a relatively tight range, both on equities and, and on fixed income, waiting for some directional movement that will then set the tone for the balance of the year. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Bill Dudley wrote a piece for Bloomberg yesterday and said just that. Um, well, two things. One, the focus on um, the labor markets, and two, the insistence that uh, inflation be allowed to run hot, therefore overheating the economy. He then said, you know, if they raise rates after that, um, they'll be forced to do it at a faster pace than they previously had. And if they push up unemployment by just half a percent, this is what I found surprising. Over the past 75 years, every time the unemployment rate rises, just half a percent, a full-blown recession occurs thereafter. Um, and this is, the, this is the problem, right? This is the concern that the Fed's going to have to tighten harder than it previously would have had to because it's allowing the economy to overheat, if you buy into his, his narrative. It's a very valid question. I think what's interesting, and, and it was a question in, in one of the prior you know, Fed press conferences that Mike McKee brought up was, you know, we're not hearing that narrative that we did in the prior rate hiking cycle of we'd like to reset some level of ammunition for that next downturn. I think it's very, it is somewhat premature, but the question really 
begged, do you need to be buying $120 billion of securities on a monthly basis? And I think we're in a different position today than we were on the prior cycle because we've blown out the balance sheet substantially more than what we did during the financial crisis. So there are little pockets of areas where, you know, the Fed last week, it, was, it wasn't heavily paid attention to, but they're starting at the margin to nibble down at that balance sheet. They made comments related to the corporate credit facility and their ETF purchases. So this is going to be something that I think evolves and from their perspective in a methodical fashion over a prolonged period of time. But we, we are likely sitting in that in, in the environment right now over the course of the next couple of months where there may not be a major direction. The news and the data flows might not matter all that much because we all have this heightened level of expectations for a, a high CPI print. Right? And so at this point, I think it's really when does the Fed start detailing their plans because they really do want to you know, calm the market. Hey, Michael, just real quickly, 30 seconds. Given that uh, Fed backdrop, where, what are you telling clients right now in terms of risk? In terms of risk, you know, I think an important dynamic is that the, the equity market still has, you know, and as you mentioned at the onset, we are fairly constructive uh, because of the, the relatively low yield dynamic. What we're looking at is just, a lower duration positioning across our fixed income portfolios because you will not get the same benefit even if rates start coming back in. So be more mindful about what you own across fixed income, but also being you know cognizant of the, the potential for lower rates of return in, in the balance of this cycle because we pulled a lot of that forward. Michael, thanks so much for your insight. Always great to get your view on this market. Michael Hans is the Chief Investment Officer at Klarfeld Financial Advisors, talking to us about um, the market's view on inflation, which really has been um, going through a, a bit of a back and forth over the past uh, days, sometimes hours. This is crazy, but Fastly, I think, would count as a small cap stock. Yeah, um, it's only it's only worth six and a quarter billion dollars in market cap, and this is a company that before today I didn't realize has the power to shut down the internet. It does, even if just momentarily. Nate Langson joins us, Bloomberg Europe tech editor and consumer tech reporter. Um, and Nate, I get why these shares were up because the first thing I thought when I when I heard this is, man, this is a powerful and important company. I, I kind of want to buy shares in that. You're absolutely right. And that was exactly my reaction um, when I first saw this is that this is not a company that many people, um, you know, myself included, I've been covering technology for over 15 years, and I hadn't really ever paid any attention to this company. And when you see some of the sites that it's possible for it to uh, have, you know, uh, have a hand in, in taking offline, albeit obviously accidentally, um, you, you have to sort of it, it turns heads a little bit. You think, well, maybe we should be paying more attention to this company, and certainly I will be doing uh, in terms of how we cover it. Um, it's, it's, and as you say, the um, the investor response and the, the stock price uh, since uh, since the open has, has been really quite fascinating. All right, Nate, tell us what happened this morning and how did it happen? Well, as far as we know. This all originated as essentially user error within the company itself. Um, there's no suggestion here that that it was a, a hack or, or the subject of any kind of um, cyber attack. Um, this is essentially the equivalent to somebody pressing the wrong button 
on a computer uh, and then having to quickly roll it back. Um, and certainly the speed with which this uh, both happened and was fixed, all of which took place within about an hour, um, makes me very confident that that, that is the case. But um, the short version of what happened is people started noticing that they weren't able to access websites um, uh, for a little while, Bloomberg.com included in, in that. And um, they and Amazon started report- and Reddit. Exactly. And Reddit and there was Spotify was reporting um, outages. Shopify. Um, Shopify as well. Yeah, it is just a, a lot of a lot of outages. And people started reporting this. Um, the company within about, I think, 25, 30 minutes had posted a status update on its service status page, which ironically for a little while was also taken offline uh, to say that um, uh, an issue had been identified and a fix was being deployed. And in just under an hour total from the first outage to uh, a resolution, uh, things started ticking back online um, and the company said it's you know it's further investigating. And generally when something like this happens, it takes a day or two for um for a full disclosure on, on the you know the cause uh, for that to be to be you published. Got, yeah. So yeah, they were like yeah. our intern accidentally pressed the red button. <laughs> exactly. He's been fired. Uh, Nate, yeah. um, you yeah. got to wonder whether or not this makes companies want to diversify. I mean, if I, if it, I was running a website and this took me down, I would think, man, is there? Can I get two people that offer the same service? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the first reaction. Um, but realistically, for the, the kind of systems administrators that are in charge of these websites, this is something that it, it's just understood to happen from time to time. Um, you know, if, if the, in, out of the entirety of a year, your website goes down for a few minutes here or a few minutes there, um, over the course of that year, you know, you're still talking way above 99% uptime, which is what a lot mm. of these companies promise and, and guarantee. And there is often, uh, you know, small amounts mm. of credits and compensation uh, that are applied based on the percentage of total outage over the course of, say, a month. Um, so right. I can't imagine they will see a fallout in people moving uh, purely because of this one incident. But if this turns out to be one of many over yep. the coming weeks, months, whatever, that's when things start to get a lot more serious, sure. All right, Nate, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate uh, your time and getting uh, your thoughts on this fascinating story to start this, uh, this day. Nate Langson, Bloomberg Europe tech editor and consumer tech reporter. Matt, you're going to like this. Our next guest participated on a panel at the largest Bitcoin conference in the world, entitled Bitcoin 2021, which took place in Miami, Florida. What I found interesting is uh, this conference was held two years ago, attracted about 2,000 people. But in 2021, there are an estimated 12,000 people in attendance. So a sign that uh, Bitcoin and cryptos really are getting into the mainstream. Uh, Frank Holmes, uh, he joins us today. Frank is the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of U.S. Global Investors. Frank, I'd love to start there. There's lots to chat with you about. But just give us a sense of what was the vibe down at Bitcoin 2021 in Miami? It was electrifying. I've spoken at so many investment conferences over the past 30 years, attended so many of them, uh, and never always been to an event where where 12,000 people spent $600 to get in the door. And on, on game day, basically the tickets were $1,200. Uh, the big retail conference for investors and ETFs and mutual funds, the money show in Orlando, you know, they'll get 6,000 people, but it's free. 
so I, I was really impressed with this, uh, that uh, this the level. And it wasn't close to anything. Like you had to have a 15-minute Uber drive to get there. Uh, usually it's a big convention right beside the hotel, these other events if you get lots of people. But people were really committed. People flew in from all over the world to attend. Uh, and so I thought that was uh, fascinating. And the caliber of speakers uh, was outstanding. Great event. I know Mike McGlone, our Bloomberg Commodities analyst, was down there as well. What did you I saw take him. away? What did you take away from the event? Um, what did you learn um, down in Miami? Well, you know, on, on stage I spoke regarding the crypto mining companies. I launched the first uh, uh, crypto mining company in the world in 2017 called Hive Blockchain Technology. And uh, it's interesting because on that panel, it was all about being green and clean, your coins. And uh, I got booed, and then I got uh, hurrah. So you have some real devotees there, uh, Bitcoin enthusiasts that are like religious fanatics. And then on the other hand, you have lots of scientists and people are interested in sort of the uh, non-centralized or decentralized uh, financial network. Uh, and that spectrum was, was huge. There was 4,000 people in the standing room only, and file marshals had to come in and tell people they couldn't stand at the back. Amazing. Yeah. So, Frank, I mean, what's the, what do you think was the overriding key issue for participants in this conference here? Is it, is it regulation? Is it um, greater adoption? Um, greater, you know, just more technology? What are some of the key takeaways? All of them. Yep. It was interesting. It was all of them. Yeah. Ron Paul, I hope when I'm in my 80s, I can uh, uh, moonwalk like uh, he was. I mean, he was unbelievable, his energy <laughs> uh, up there on, the, on that stage. So he had the sort of the, the political positioning of uh, financial independence, etc. And, and then you had the Michael Saylor did a phenomenal job. Uh, he had a standing room uh, ovation. Uh, so I think it was very broad. Uh, Dorsey was there for Twitter, uh, and he was sort of the philosophical approach. Uh, we had a heckler for him. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it was, it was just fascinating to observe. Uh, what I, you know, I did see is, is that there is a push for crypto mining to be done in North America and Europe and away from China. Uh, the pools for more uh, transparency is better to have than coming from China. That there was a uh, the mayor uh, spoke uh, very well of, uh, and how he's trying to create the Silicon Valley of the East Coast is going to be in Miami. So you know that was very you know interesting to see that shift. So there's many dynamic things happening at the same time in all ages. Uh, you had the uh, venture capital funds, uh, the billionaire players flying in from uh, San Francisco. Uh, to the kid in his flip-flops on, walking around with his knapsack that's up $3 million on his Bitcoin holdings. Is that Matt Miller? Matt, were you in Miami? <laughs> I was not, but I would definitely be wearing flip-flops because I hate shoes. <laughs> Everyone who knows me knows how I feel about shoes. Frank, I promised our listeners that I would get you to talk a little bit about airlines, and I know that on the day you left, there were 1.6 million passengers screened um, that's up 100% from a year ago. we got to get you back because we've run out of time, but I do want to hear from you in the future. So we'll, we'll, hopefully you have time. We can rebook you, talk a little bit about airlines and about the Jets ETF as well. Frank Holmes, CIO, Chief Investment Officer, U.S. Global Investors. He was a speaker at the Big Bitcoin Conference in Miami and a founder of one of the first big Bitcoin mines. This is Bloomberg. 
Let's bring in Dan Gettner now. He's president, chief executive officer, and chief investment officer at RNC Gender Capital Management. And uh, Dan, um, it's great to get somebody who has skin in the game. You've got $5 billion in assets under management and has some stock picks for us. Um, let's talk about what you want right now. Well, first of all, let's talk about your inflation outlook, because I guess that drives your decisions uh, to some degree. Yeah, Matt, I think, you know, right now, certainly inflation is the, is the hot button and it's the watchword in the overall market. And uh, it's, you know, we're, we're waiting to see what these numbers come out with with CPI and obviously for PCE, which is really what the Fed is looking at. But, you know, the numbers are very, very hot right now. And they're, they're certainly, I think, a little above the Fed's expectations. The market's a little concerned about it. You know, we're seeing PCE that just came out at 3.6%. Uh, Fed wants a long-term target of about 2 uh, you know, the, the, the watchword right now is transitory, though I think what you're going to see is that the, the definition of transitory is going to change over time. And I think the market is really looking to see, is this something that really is going to be a few months uh, that's going to open up as you have supply chain, basically reopening of supply chain is what we're dealing with. And so is that going to be truly a few months of uh, transitory nature? We get back on the Fed's more or less 2% guideline for inflation. And therefore, any unwinding that they're going to do is going to be either insignificant or non-existent. If it stays longer than that and really becomes you know, more cyclical, then the, the market's going to adjust to that. You know, we, uh, we think employment's a huge part of this right now, and that, that's the main thing we're watching. Yeah, we got some very interesting jolts uh, data out this morning about uh, you know record job openings. Uh, so that was uh, very interesting for this market. Dan, you know that uh, that cyclical trade, uh, if you will, that started let's call it last September, has really worked out well for investors that have played, you know, some of the more cyclical parts of the market, maybe even the small caps. Um, a, are you in on that trade? And B, you know, kind of what's your outlook? Well, we're very heavy on that trade, as a matter of fact, and, and really started in the end of the third quarter and, and pretty heavily into the fourth quarter of last year. I mean, the, uh, look, the energy sector, you know, which was beat up so badly last year, has led the market this year. I mean, the energy sector is up 46 percent. Uh, hot on its heels is financials at up almost 30 percent, and even materials are up over 20 percent. So it's, it's been a big part of our portfolios and, and even in our growth and value portfolios as we reached the second half of last year, we went much heavier towards the value side. And I think that that's going to continue. I think what you're, what you're seeing in this market, despite some of the sideshows that are taking headlines, uh, is that this market is moving back to being very earnings oriented. And whether that's reopening trade or whether or not it's just fundamentals of ongoing companies, I mean, that's where we're going. And, and so valuations have become very, very critical. And, and so the market is definitely moving that way. We think, frankly, we're early in that rotation of rotation back to value. So it's, it's something we definitely intend to participate with and, and, uh, and something that you know, we think is going to pull more and more investors into it as they see confirmation. And you like Phillips 66 here with a 4% yield. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think it's one of the, the, cre the very key um, underlyings with regards to investor sentiment right now is that people are looking for, you know, not just, uh, again, things that are going to be extraordinarily volatile. They may play in those areas, but for core portfolio assets, you know, they want to see not only some stability of earnings growth, but they want to see some income and some yield. And what we're seeing now is also a very significant transformation and transition of bondholders 
that are realizing if they're going to have some income out there, uh, looking at where 10-year Treasury rates are and rates overall, they're going to have to have more risk. And they're going to start to gravitate towards high-dividend stocks that are paying, in many cases, three or four times what they're going to get in fixed-income assets because they need to have some cash flow. They need to have something to live on. And so when you look at a Phillips 66, which is still trading at 10% below its pre-COVID values, uh, then it's a, it's a, we think it's a very strong play, especially you get 4% that's tax-preferred while you wait. How about Bristol Myers Squibb? That's a, obviously the we've seen the healthcare stocks with uh, Biogen kind of in the news over the last couple of days. Is Bristol Myers is that another one like a Phillips sixty six where it's just a steady eddy kind of good long term performer? Well, I think it's a combination. You know, first of all, it, it clearly it's the cheapest of the large cap pharma stocks right now, trading at about a PE of eight. And it's got a good, strong yield, once again, 3% in cash flow while you wait. And one of the real values we see in, in Bristol-Myers is we think that the market is just severely handicapping you know, some of the drugs that are going to come off of patent and at the, at the tail end of the pipeline and what they're not taking into consideration. They had four new drugs last year. They've got four new launches that are coming out in 2021. They're modeling about $10 billion from those new releases, and we think that that's uh, – just significantly lower than the $25 billion that we're modeling. So when you look at, you know, based upon that we think overall earnings are going to be about $86, even on a multiple of 10, yep. of half of the overall market, you know, we're, you know, we think it's a $86 stock, right, from where it is now at 65. That'd be a good return there. Dan Gentner, President, CEO, and CIO of RNC Gentner Capital Management. They have about $5 billion in assets under management. Looking at some of those big cap names, and uh, I guess, you know, for the market, a lot of investors in the market, you know, those uh, cyclical names have really worked well in this reopening trade, if you will. And the question I hear from a lot of investors is, you know, what's the duration? How much legs does that trade have? Can I still ride the energy stocks? Can I still ride the financial stocks, uh, for example? Or do I need to pivot back to the tried and true top line growth stories? That is what markets are looking at. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.